We went to London New Year's Day for our big audition at Decca. We thought it went well, but... Thank you, gentlemen. We appreciate you coming down. Don't tell me you didn't like them. I'm afraid I didn't. How is that possible? You see, Mr. Epstein... It's Epstein. Yes. As I was about to say, it is my job, Mr. Epstein, to feel the pulse of the record-buying public. And it's my sense that guitar bands, like these chaps, are simply on the way out. You are absolutely wrong. These boys are going to be bigger than Elvis. Come to Liverpool. See them perform. See how the audiences respond. Liverpool is not London, Mr. Epstein. I know you have a very profitable situation up there. If I were you, sir, I would just tend to the hurt. Well, I am not you, sir. And someday you are going to kick yourself for this decision. I hope the bastard kicks himself to death someday. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Seven, this is roll six, 29, five, 29. Three, two, one. Can't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that, we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got, like, my quantum of tunes for the next ten years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 12 While I was researching this episode, I came across something in Kevin Harrington's book, Who's the Redhead on the Roof? We discussed John's diary for 1969 in episode two and it's interesting that kevin illustrates here that when we say john or george or paul did something it's actually their assistants that are doing the work it reads as follows john lennon turned up one day carrying a small bag and asked me if i could help him put together a diary that he had written he couldn't quite finish getting it together and thought i might be able to and if I couldn't, I was to ring a guy called John Kosh, who would help. John had been asked to contribute a piece for Aspen Magazine, issue 7. He produced what was called Diary of the Future. So I took it home and laid it out on the table with instructions to Mum and Dad not to move it. What they made of it, I don't know. After two days of messing around with scraps of paper of diary entries, I had no idea how to finish it off. So I rang John Kosh and introduced myself. John Kosh had met Lennon because Kosh was the designer for Aspen magazine. I explained the problem, went to his flat and left it with him. Being a graphic designer, it didn't take him long. After that first meeting, I got to know him and his wife Marjorie pretty well and spent quite a few evenings with them both. 
So there you go, you learn something new every day. Well, that was a long one last time. But I thought I'd get my money's worth out of that copy of the Beatles book. Much in the same way that the three Beatles were engrossed in the publication during this part of the morning. My podcast recommendation. Murder Mile. One man on his boat creating wonderful evocative soundscapes, acting out all the parts and telling beautifully researched tales of tragedy with compassion. Check it out. As ever, you can binge the whole of January 2nd in eight episodes now. And we are just diving into January 3rd, so here is the summary of episode 11. George picks up a copy of the Beatles monthly book and comments on it to Paul, who asks if it's any good. George complains that they are all looking older, despite the oldest of them, Ringo, being only 28 at this point. Ringo himself has been left alone at the piano and takes the opportunity to run through taking a trip to Carolina. This performance is on the Let It Be Naked bonus disc. After mumbling his way through another idea with the same chords, we are then treated to some experimental trills up and down the keyboard. In the background are George, Paul and Mal Evans having a conversation. Fortunately, there were two Nagra recorders operating during these sessions, so we are able to switch across and hear the conversation this time with Ringo in the background. George is reading aloud a section of Malevan's column in the Beatles monthly book. I go through this section about the Jackie Lomax sessions in the episode. Paul asks, who took the photos? It's interesting that the Beatles are so used to being photographed that they don't seem to remember who has photographed them. Although the house photographer for the magazine was Leslie Bryce, we learn that many photos were taken by John Kelly, Tony Bramwell and Mal himself. As George reaches for his Gibson J200 acoustic, it's Ringo's turn to look through the Beatles book with Mal. George plays a version of Bob Dylan's Please Mrs Henry and Ringo complains about how the magazine is padded out with older pictures of the band. Mal comments that this is because there aren't many recent group pictures. This will be rectified during these sessions as Ethan Russell is commissioned to take hundreds of pictures for an as yet unknown purpose. As George finishes Mrs Henry, he asks Ringo if he's played his copy of Dylan's Basement Tapes. Ringo says he's played only one. Much like John's half-listening to Jackie Lomax's album, George is failing to inspire his bandmates with his musical tastes. That said, George seems to offend Mal by stating he hasn't read all of his column. But in fairness, it is rather long. George then runs through a song that's believed to be an unreleased original. Sulby calls it Rambling Woman and Who Am I to Disagree. It's pretty good too. Paul takes his turn with the Beatles book and is highly amused by the idea of a married woman, Mrs Barbara Pavey, running the Rutland branch of the Beatles fan club. There's been a side to Paul in these sessions that's not often seen, even today. He's quick-witted and occasionally hilariously funny. He seems to tense up when the cameras are on, but here he's just very natural. An example of this is his joking with Ringo that the fan club would still be very loyal if the Beatles went to prison. 
His line about Ringo is now in mailbags, with Ringo interjecting, thanks for the cards, is a highlight. George makes an interesting remark here. He follows Ringo with, thanks for the guitar, no matter how cheap and crummy. It reminds me of a scene in the Maisels documentary shot in 1964 which features the Beatles in their Miami Beach hotel, packing to go home. George is filmed playing a quite cheap looking guitar which may have been a gift from a fan. As he struggles to tune it and play something, he remarks, it's a crummy guitar anyway. I wonder if George is thinking of this. Looking at pictures in the magazine of a more clean shaven Paul, George compliments him on his new beard. Paul is in two minds about it. This reminds George of his time with Dylan and the band, possibly because Paul looks a lot like the band's Garth Hudson right now. George is full of enthusiasm for the musicians he's been hanging out with, probably as a contrast to his own bandmates. He tells Ringo he would go down well with them all because they actually liked his song best on the Beatles' double album. Paul asks Ringo if he will write another, instantly offending Ringo. With encouragement from George, Ringo attempts to demo his other song, Picasso, but it's not very successful. He then returns to taking a trip to Carolina. Both of these songs are based around the same three chords as his previous song, Don't Pass Me By. Notable by its absence is Octopus's Garden, which he will be filmed performing later in the month. The official story is that he wrote this song in Sardinia during his two-week hiatus from the band in 1968, and yet he doesn't mention it here. Perhaps the germ of an ideal, or at least the title, was kept by Ringo for future use, but he doesn't have it ready to play for his bandmates. Maybe it only becomes a song once he adds another chord, A minor, to his repertoire. George and Paul then discuss recent covers by American artists of their, well in truth, Paul's compositions. Paul calls these former heroes the real people. They also reflect that they don't have any fast songs, which John will also complain about later. George wonders if he should play a song as a solo performance. Paul and Ringo encourage him knowing that this would ease the pressure on them to rehearse the material. George strums the intro to All Things Must Pass and reflects that it would be nicer with some backing. So, let's rejoin them now as George switches to electric and Paul heads for Ringo's drum kit. A quick note before we start. This commentary has been the hardest yet. George has a tendency to mumble, and when he's not close to a mic, it takes endless replays to grasp what he is saying. Even then, there are a few occasions when I've had to admit defeat and just report what words I can hear. It's not helped at all by his habit of quoting lyrics in a sort of word association response to phrases other people are saying. I don't know if people still do this, but my parents' generation definitely did. So bear this in mind, in this episode, some of this is my best guess, but it's definitely an improvement on some transcripts I've read. I mean, it'd be nice with bass and drums. That sounds more like Paul on drums. The timing is a little off. George takes off the capo after an expletive. The song is in too high a key like that. 
Paul is humming along while drumming. Now we know it's definitely Paul as he comments on the reverberation from the huge space sounding like a tape echo. He hits the snare hard to test this. Coming out, out the speakers. Ringo is still by the piano and says the PA is picking up the drums too. The speaker is behind him. There's that smoker's cough again. do really start to appreciate Ringo's playing listening to this. George has plugged in, photos from this day show him with his Epiphone Casino guitar. When the Beatles travelled to Rishikesh in early 1968, they met up with folk musician Donovan Leach. It is thought to be Donovan that shared the belief with them that a guitar would sound better without a heavy finish. As we know from previous episodes, we think that John and George went to Soho-based tech Sam Lee to strip the varnish from both their Epiphone casinos. Stills from the footage taken today show George playing his casino instead of Lucy, his Gibson Les Paul. George's casino differed from John's in one major aspect. His was equipped with a big-speed tremolo system, whereas John's was not. In keeping with this bare wood look, or at least ethos, George is believed to have bought Ringo a brand new Ludwig Hollywood drum kit with a maple finish. Ringo is forever associated with the classic Beatlemania Ludwig drum kit in a finish known as Oyster Black. He had owned several over the years, increasing their size to compete with the ever-louder amplifiers supplied by Vox for the band's stadium shows. The kit was delivered to the studio the same day as the Beatles started work on the song Glass Onion, September 11th, 1968. Drum kits are, in effect, several instruments at once, so explaining the features is a long and complex matter. However, Ringo detractors should know that he was very particular about how he wanted his drum set up and there are a number of idiosyncrasies that he would have specifically required. The Hollywood kit was purchased, probably by Mal, at Drum City, a subdivision of the Beatles' favourite store, Sound City. Date stamps on the kit show various dates in 1967 for manufacture. The standard kit delivered on that September day consisted of a 22-inch bass drum, 12-inch and 13-inch rack tom-toms, a 16-inch floor tom and an all-metal supraphonic snare. Hardware was included but not cymbals. Total cost was £484, which works out at £7,285 in today's money. Upon receiving the kit, Ringo made a number of changes. Firstly, the bottom hoop and skin of the floor tom were removed, as was the front skin of the kick drum. 
the newly commissioned drum skin with the Beatles logo on it that starts the Let It Be film was intended to replace this in the live shows, but these resonant skins were taken off to facilitate better miking during the recording session. Ringo also didn't take to the new metal snare drum and returned to his old favourite Oyster Black Pearl Jazz Festival snare with its distinctive 5.5 inch depth. His cymbals were simply swapped over from his other kit, although he now used three, including a much-used, thin-sounding, cheap-and-cheerful Zin Crash with five rivets in it. As this new kit now sported three tom-toms instead of his customary two, Ringo was unable to do his usual trick of attaching the tom to the bass drum with a retrofit Rogers mount. He favoured this over the standard Ludwig option because being left-handed and leading with his left on fills, he needed the tom closer to his left side. He was unable to do this with the Hollywood toms, so they were mounted on a separate stand in front of the kit. We'll probably get into Ringo's damping techniques in a later episode, but suffice it to say he regularly muffled the snare drum by placing a thin tea towel over it to cut the note very short. It was a popular sound at the time and well into the 1970s. Finally, it's worth noting that as the drummer in the biggest band in the world, about to embark on a worldwide televised live performance, Ringo is sitting on a drum stool with a homemade improvised backrest. It's extraordinary how different their expectations are compared to performers today. George and Paul jam on Don't Let Me Down, or it could be argued sunken. Anyway, it's F-sharp minor to E major on repeat. <laughs> While we wait for John and Yoko to arrive, it seems like as good a time as any to address the difficult subject of their heroin addiction. Joe Gooden has written an excellent book entitled Riding So High, The Beatles and Drugs. In it, he quotes Keith Richards' observation of the Lennons and their habit. I never knew what John was on. He was always on something for quite a while. I always wondered when he used to come and visit me, and he'd always end up throwing up over the staircase. I should have figured that he was on something else, but I just thought he'd drunk too much. We'd never sit around and talk about what you're on. We'd always talk about music or listen to records, try to solve the world's problems or something like that. I always thought John was bigger than any drug he took anyway. The thing was with John, for all his vaunted bravado, he really couldn't keep up. He'd try and take anything I took, but without my good training. John would inevitably end up in the John, hugging the porcelain, and there'd be Yoko in the background. He really shouldn't be doing this. And I'd go, I know, but I didn't force him. But he'd always come back for more, wherever we were. I don't think John ever left my house, except horizontally, or definitely propped up. Yoko has claimed that her and John were afraid of needles, and this fear probably saved them from a really serious addiction. What was your experience with heroin? Heroin? Uh, it just was not too much fun, you know. I never injected it. And, uh, we sniffed a little, you know, when we were in real pain. I mean, we just couldn't. People were giving us such a hard time. No, 
but we, we got such a hard time from everyone, you know. And I've had so much shit thrown at me and at Yoko, you know, especially at Yoko. People just uh, like Peter Brown in our office, and you can put this in. After we come out from six months, he comes down and shakes my hand and doesn't even say hello to her. You know? And that's going on all the time, you know. And we get in so much pain that we have to we have to do something about it, you know. And that's what what happened to us, you know. We we took H because of what the Beatles and their pals were doing to us. I mean, they didn't set down to do it, but the people. I, people's things came out at that period, you know, and I don't forget. And another thing that saved us was our connection was not very good. The connection kept giving us a lump laced with baby powder. In fact, we smelled talcum powder. We'd say, what is this? But that saved us, actually. Many rock stars had very good connections, and we would visit them, and they would have a big bowl of powder. And if we did something then, we'd be so high, we couldn't even walk straight. We would think, is this what they are doing every day? We weren't doing it that way. We didn't have a connection like that. Kevin Harrington, in his book, Who's the Redhead on the Roof, goes into a little bit more detail about the connection. One day I was asked to pick up a letter for John and Yoko from a Battersea mansion to take it to where they were staying in Ringo's old flat. I jumped in a cab to Battersea and found the flat and knocked on the door. After a few minutes the door opened a little and a half-asleep man peered out at me. I told him who had sent me and he closed the door. A minute later the door opened again and I was handed an envelope and the door closed. I thought it was a bit odd. In all my two years of knocking on doors this experience was a first. I got another cab and curiosity got the better of me. The envelope wasn't sealed and it didn't feel like a letter. I had a peek, another first. Inside was a small folded piece of paper. I carefully pulled it open and saw white powder, which I have to admit confused me at the time. Very carefully I closed the paper back up and put it in the envelope. It was only later when John got busted that I realised what it was. High functioning addicts often don't display the side effects of their addiction. John is often engaged and funny here, so far in these sessions at least, the worst manifestation has been his muddled thinking and camera shyness when working on Don't Let Me Down on the second, and his lateness today. Worse is yet to come by the time we reach the 14th of January and the infamous interview for the Canadian CBC network. In this, John will be obviously high and nauseous throughout, and it's not an easy thing to watch. The most detrimental effect the drug had, though, was to suppress his songwriting. The songs for last year's double album had mostly been written in the spring of 1968. Since then he'd composed very little. This is obvious by the lack of new material he'll bring to these sessions. Addicted couples find it harder to kick the habit. Being with another user means that each is enabling the other. That August, with Yoko pregnant again and still using, they were warned that the heroin could cause a second miscarriage or leave the baby addicted. Admirably, that was enough to make them take steps to quit. Staying at home with the assistance of friends Dan and Jill Richter, they went cold turkey. The most likely date for this is August 25th, 1969. But tragically, it wasn't enough to save the child. It sounds like John and Yoko have arrived. George is saying, what's that? 
like be easier with you keeps coming in international i have to admit defeat on this one let me know if you can decipher it Ringo now back on drums. Now there's two guitars, probably Paul and George. A jam on a 12 bar with that E major sharp ninth chord, like the Hendrix chord. The first real beat or jam caught on tape. There's a vague bass that you can hear low in the mix but it's most likely just the bass tone of the amp turned up sounds like George vocalising some nonsense lyrics, though he does sound a lot like John. The tambourine sound is a set of jingles attached to Ringo's hi-hat. That sounds like John going, what? As George improvises lyrics about someone whose name was Tag. Inspired by Ringo's drum pattern, they jam on Bo Diddley's Cracking Up. starts the singing but Paul continues it. They're singing off mic. They've already commented about the drums coming through the PA so we know it's switched on. George commenting on the echo or at least reverb bouncing off the studio walls. just sounds like a jam based around that tremolo channel on the Fender Twin. After a while it sounds like both amps are using that channel. That sounds like Glyn John saying something like he plays drums right-handed. Perhaps aware of Paul and Ringo's left-handedness, but right-handedness when they drum. Then, oh, is that what it is? Is that why it all went line out? 
I'm not sure if this is Glyn talking about the mic placement or maybe it's a power problem, which is what they also encounter later. The feed switches to Paul's mic. John is here and you can hear him turning pages in the Beatles Monthly. Possibly looking at Paul's pick, hence Paul's comment about his face. George starts cracking up again. George improvising lyrics to Elvis's All Shook Up. There's quite a few cover versions played while the Beatles warm up, so my descriptions will be brief. All Shook Up was a number one hit for Elvis Presley in 1957, written by Otis Blackwell, but it's co-credited to Presley also. Elvis was not known for his songwriting ability and is only thought to have suggested the title. Just George and Ringo play. Paul's bass now plugged in. John is now involved. Balance isn't great, but the band assemble around this oldie. Paul steers the band into Carl Perkins' Your True Love. This isn't time wasted, this is a band being a band, playing music for enjoyment. Your True Love is another song released in 1957 and it was recorded on the day in December 1956 that Elvis Presley dropped by the Sun Studios and participated in the jam session that became known as the Million Dollar Quartet. It was backed with Matchbox, which the Beatles recorded a cover of in 1964. Staying with the Carl Perkins theme, John starts his version of Blue Suede Shoes at a similar pace to the way he'd perform it at the Toronto Peace Festival later in the year. Blue Suede Shoes became the original rock anthem when Elvis Presley made this a huge hit in 1956. The version the Beatles are playing is Carl Perkins' 1955 original, often cited as one of the first rockabilly recordings. Paul calls out the intro of Three Called Cats, a song played at their Decca audition in 1962, only seven years previously, almost to this day. The arrangement is identical, George taking the lead but forgetting a lot of the words. Three Called Cats is a 1958 song written by the partnership Lieber and Stoller. 
the Beatles found this gem on the B-side of the coaster's Charlie Brown. As I've mentioned, it's a throwback to their Decker audition in 1962, succinctly summed up in the scene from the film Birth of the Beatles that is our pre-credit sequence. <laughs> Stoppers and the cement mixers guild like to sing walk don't run <laughs> that's john doing mock intros the way that they would back in the cavern all those years ago or possibly it's a reference to their bbc shows where fans would request songs the joke here is walk don't run is an instrumental according to Sulpy, the bulldog gang and the cement mixers guild were two names of actual early fan clubs George sings, Suddenly It's Paradise, inspired by that little Good Evening Friends bit of guitar from John. Very hard to decipher this comment under John's frantic guitar. Polo for new sensation is what I hear, but without context I can't be certain. George leads them into a parody northern cabaret style version of Blowing in the Wind. The tape runs out. Blowing in the Wind is a Bob Dylan single from 1962, but also a track from his album The Freewheeling Bob Dylan, which the Beatles were familiar with. This northern club singer style is also adopted by John later in the sessions to sing a parody version of his own Help. The next bit of audio shows the Beatles still warming up, not really getting down to any serious work, but the Beatles are singing through the PA now. Paul takes the band through a version of Lucille complete with Belch. Mike levels are being adjusted, drums are getting louder so maybe these jams have a purpose. Lucille was a 1957 R&B number one for Little Richard. The slower chugging tempo and driving bass riff was highly influential in shifting rock and roll into 60s rock. Richard himself was an idol of both John and Paul and had jed the bill with the Beatles in Hamburg during one of their residencies. I'm so tired. Paul now chooses to sing this John song from last year's double album. We haven't heard any discussion yet if they plan to play any songs from this in their live show. This might have been a good choice. They remember it well. Lay off the booze, boy. A little added humour from Paul. I'm So Tired was written by John in India in response to the insomnia he was experiencing through meditation and the complete withdrawal from drugs. As the song was only recorded on the 8th of October, it's still quite fresh in the band's minds. The mumbled lines on the outro, much like a lot of the dialogue here, has been misinterpreted to be Paul is dead man, miss him, miss him, and was seen as 
evidence for the Paul is Dead conspiracy later in the year. Paul now mimicking the mumbled phrase that ends the studio recording of I'm So Tired. Because we've seen him on telly though. Oh, bloody. <laughs> ring! Ring! <laughs> I think this conversation is about how bands playing popular tunes in ballrooms, much like they do today on shows like Strictly, include all the ad libs in their faithful cover versions, even if it's unnecessary. John's turn to parody a Paul song, changing all the words on the hoof. They're probably mimicking Marmalade's version of Obladio Blada, which was on top of the pops last night. (laughs) Hence John joking, if you want some jam, which makes everyone laugh, this is lifted directly from the Marmalade record. (coughs) Jimmy's got me stars on that promised him some publicity. Well, you got it, Jim. Alimony case. Jimmy Scott was a London-based Nigerian musician who coined the phrase, Obladi, Oblada, life goes on. At this time, Scott was trying to claim a writer's credit for the song, which, considering his phrase is the entire chorus, isn't unreasonable. However, Paul wasn't that happy that the British press sided with Scott. The matter was settled in late 1969 when Paul agreed to pay Scott's legal bills. He was in Brixton prison and waiting trial for failing to pay maintenance, which is something that Paul alludes to here. He did this in exchange for Scott dropping his claim. Strange though that the Beatles chose to record this song in a scar arrangement, which is a West Indian idiom, when the song's origins are African. The telephone ringing inspires John to improvise some lyrics to this riff of Paul's. George shouting to Mal that his amp has lost power. Paul is still on. John has also lost power to his amp. George strangely quoting the great pretender. George wondering if he stepped on a cable. It all seems very haphazard. They're running on extension leads and adapter blocks. George pointing out an obvious practical solution to Mal here. Causing some hilarity with his exasperation, he's saying, Kinel man or Mal. Mal looking for another way to wire the band up causes George to quote there must be some way out of here from Bob Dylan's all along the watchtower but at least the guitars are back on finally Paul calls out for a song to rehearse 
Now the Beatles look like they're finally getting down to work, so we'll leave it for now. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.